Hi, guys. I'm Crystal with the Journey Series podcast again. I'm wearing a black top shirt with a, a white and red striped stripes. And I have a brown background and a shelf with a clock. And I'm Mark. I'm a brown man wearing brown shirt in front of a background with a painting and some knickknacks. And I've got glasses on. So today we're going to be talking to Leah. And she has an awesome, she's had awesome experiences. And she is in Washington right now, but she does a lot of stuff overseas. And she's an author and she's dealt with uh, MS and have had a lot of awesome experiences talking to different people about that. So welcome. Thank you, Crystal. I'm Leah, and I have glasses on, and I have very, very silver white curly hair. And there's a couple of pictures behind my head. Um, So why don't we start off uh, with you telling us, Leah, a bit about your background and uh, uh, life before MS, if that's possible, and just tell us as much as you're able to. Yes. Thank you. Well, life before MS seems like a really long time ago. I was diagnosed in 1987. So that's probably before you guys were even born. <laughs> but uh, no, <laughs> Mark's shaking his head. No. <laughs> um, so uh, um, I was involved in the music business. And that's why I have this framed album hanging behind me. Um, So I was a singer songwriter and uh, performed in clubs and around. And this was in the um, early eighties. It was an exciting time. Um, I was living in the Seattle area and this was sort of pre grunge. Um, So I like to say (laughs) that I was the auntie to, to all of those bands, you know, uh, Pearl Jam and Nirvana and all that. Um, And so that was my life. Uh, And then I uh, developed a really bad headache and ended up going to see a doctor. And over the space of about a week, I went blind in my left eye and partially in my right eye. And back in the 80s, there wasn't uh, as much medical data or or information about multiple sclerosis. There was certainly no, no treatment. And, uh, but I thankfully um, had a neurologist who, um, and an ophthalmologist who were pretty clear um, that that was indeed what the situation, what was causing the optic neuritis. And so I was diagnosed. Um, I will never forget that moment when I was actually in the ophthalmologist's office and he put up the uh, MRI, um, black and white image, um, on the light wall. And back then MRI was very, um, not as sophisticated as it is now, but I remember looking at that, all of those little 
dots up there and thinking, wow, I am looking at my brain <laughs> and how profoundly moving that was. And I got to say, it was kind of a relief to finally have an actual diagnosis for things that suddenly I realized, oh yeah, there was this and there was that. And, you know, you, you just didn't put it all together. But um, so life before MS was, was being a, um, I say this tongue in cheek, being a rock star. Um, and then life after MS was filled with a lot of pain and a lot of um, uh, coping that, you know, I was 30 years old and didn't really know I was still a kid in my, in my mind and acting like a kid. And it was really hard, hard transition. Um, my besides the optic neuritis, which um, subsequently, um, subsided. And so I got most of my vision back not all of it, but most of it, my primary, uh, uh, symptom was pain. And it literally felt like I had a knife in my back and to live with that level of, um, chronic acute pain really messes with us as human beings. And it's very difficult for the people who love us and care about us to, to know how to help us, to know how to support us, to see us in that extremity, you know, day after day. So I kind of lost everybody, my uh, music partner, my boyfriend, my dearest friends, they just, they couldn't stand it. So they, so I kind of was left alone and, and that I think more than anything was the worst part of, um, I think we all understand, you know, what it's like to, um, live differently and, um, different, uh, you know, with different kinds of abilities and, um, to the isolation that that can, that that can cause. So that was, that was really tough. And, um, but out of that, I basically felt that I had, things couldn't get any worse. <laughs> um, so I began to live very fearlessly. I, I already had been living quite fearlessly. I mean, music industry in the eighties, you can imagine, but even more so I, uh, when certain opportunities to live overseas or to, um, to travel or to take certain kinds of jobs, um, appeared, I would take it because what's the worst that could happen? It had already happened. What's the worst that could happen? I could die. And, and as we know, we often live with the thought of that's not the worst thing that could happen, <laughs> you know, when we're, when we're dealing with, you know, depression and pain and, and all of that. So, um, I, uh, so that's kind of my, um, my origin story. How's that when it comes to MS? And, um, what, so what, what changed, um, you, you went through sort of this dark period once you were diagnosed and continued as much as possible to live the way you were living, uh, what, uh, what changed in your mind? Um, 
I think, uh, so I've always been a creative person. And so before I, uh, you know, when writing songs, you write lyrics for songs. And so that's a kind of rhythmic poetry, if you will. And, and so because I couldn't perform anymore, um, I, uh, just because of the pain and being blind and, you know, all of that and, and losing my musical partners, losing my band. Um, so I, uh, began to write poetry and found a lot of solace in that. And then right. over, over the years, the poetry, I had more and more to say, I guess. And so the poetry became longer and longer and, and mm. then became prose. And um, so now I'm writing novels. Um, Which is an excellent segue and, you know, an outlet to be able to um, not just talk about how you feel, but uh, other, you know, fun stuff, you know, you can do. And you maybe was, you were on a different path of not being able to do it musically anymore, but you still have the ability to be able to put down words um, and, you know, in your poetry and then eventually into a book or yes. books. So, uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm very lucky that I, that I had that skill set, you know, already, uh, mm-hmm inside me would you would you say it is the same or has it uh, changed in any way like you're feeling about that ability or even the nature of the ability itself has it changed for you in any way Gosh, it's been so long, Mark. It's been decades, you know, since I've been, I mean, MS now is, is just, uh, it's just a part of who I am. It's not something that happened to me. It's the way I have white hair. I have, um, you know, hazel eyes and I have MS. And, and so that's something that, um, I think was, challenging well it it i was very very lucky that the pro, uh the progress of the disease was relatively mild for a long time um i did again dealing with that pain but discovering meditation and and um returning to southeast asia where i was born and lived as a child i learned some tools like meditation and visualization that really helped with, with coping with the pain. Um, yet, uh, I, um, I guess, uh, oh, I forgot what I was, the tangent that I was on, (laughs) but, but, We um, were talking about the parallels of how you, how you were doing, uh, music and then poetry and, that so so thank you the um i think to have some kind of way to um express oneself um independent of one's um physical self um in a creative way 
Um, you don't have to be good at it. Um, you don't have to have anybody look at it. You don't have to sell it. You don't have to make a career out of it, but it's such a wonderful um, outlet to um, explore, um, you know, drawing or whatever it is. Um, so, so I, I was able to, to do that. Um, in the last, I would say, um, five years or six years, my, um, the, dis the disability, I hate using that word, but the disease has progressed so that I am, um, I'm not able to drive. I, I can't walk very far, um, without help, but, um, so my world has gotten a lot smaller. Um, but because I live in this crazy imaginative brain of mine, that's not um, as as terrible as it might seem to people who who only get their um, their nourishment from you know climbing mountains or rafting down a river. Or, you know, um, I still love nature, but I can experience nature sitting on my front porch. So. Definitely, it's a it's a it's a gift. Whenever you're able to use it to help yourself and be able to make an outlet, but also on the other side of that, you're being relatable and you're helping people come out of their shell and realize that their disability is not the end and they have so much more to offer uh, you know even though it society makes that hard to see um if they seek internally you know um and through reading, reading uh being able to mindfully think of all the things that they can still do without the voices in the world you know um telling you you can't do this you can't do that um that's a very powerful thing that you're invoking thank you the, i i feel that and the other other thing about that is uh there's so much importance put on the physical, like climbing a mountain or doing whatever. But in reality, when you sit down and really spend time, you realize that in your mind, there are no limits. You could go to the moon tomorrow if you wanted to. You're not limited by a physical mountain or whatever. And, and and quite frankly, that's what I do when I write. I go to all these different countries, these different places. Yeah. I mean, sure, most of them I've been before. So I, I work with um, memories, but, um, you know, to fuel that. But you you can right. make it all up, too. <laughs> so. Yeah, but oftentimes I feel like I've talked to a lot more people that are disabled that are creatively able to um uh it would seem like somebody normal would have to make up some of the stuff that we deal with or some of the uh, uh situations we have you know 
that we're able to talk about that they can't. <laughs> uh, so they oftentimes are more creative and it brings up good stories and good poetry and good music and, you know, lots of different things and acting Absolutely. even. Yeah. Absolutely. It is, it is true that we, um, um, we are so uh, influenced by the the media and society of what normal means and and you know it's it's um i i walk with a cane or a walker and i see people especially children are willing to stare um but an adult will look and then look away quickly and mm -hmm. i will have friends that i've or acquaintances that i've known for years who are afraid to ask me why I walk with a cane. And that just seems so, I, I don't know, it so sort of sad to me that people are um, fearful of being inappropriate, I guess. And people, of course, want to respect other people's boundaries. But when it's obvious that you are living differently, um, I think that should be discussed. And people should be curious about it. Like, what do you guys think? Well, actually, I was about to bring that up because we talk a lot on this channel about those uh, biases are generational. You know, our parents and their parents were taught that disability is a bad thing. And we need to hide them away or, you know, we need to put them in institutions. They're, they're not really people or, you know, whatever. But, you know, we aspire to on the channel to bring out those stories and show what kind of people, you know, that are out there. And even if they have a disability, they do amazing things. And so we appreciate people like you that are able to do that. And then to not only just do it, but also talk about it or write about it. I think there are, there's right way and wrong way to approach that situation about uh, talking to someone with a cane or whatever device it is or whatever issue it is. You know, if, if it's coming from a good place of genuine curiosity, curiosity like maybe instead of maybe asking someone why you're walking with the cane is okay but starting the the conversation by saying what's wrong with you is it probably the wrong approach so um i was saying i was bringing up the um I don't know how much you we've you know about us, but we have a taxia, which is a another type of neuro thing, uh, kind of like MS or Parkinson's. It's just the same concept, <laughs> but um, but we definitely have some of the same issues, and um, I'm guessing that you probably deal with the same thing where people are very adamant 
about we're okay one day and we can walk just fine or talk just fine or whatever. And then the next day, we need all of that, you know, and all that's messed up. And, <laughs> and we get so much judgment, and I'm sure you do as well. Yes, and I'm, I, I, anyway, I just, um, I am filled with gratitude that I have a husband, a partner who is very uh, supportive and will, uh, you know, I, I used to work in politics, believe it or not, and, and some other things like that. So I, um, uh, I haven't had to have a traditional nine to five job to support myself. We, you know, we had a child and raised the child. And, and so I'm very, very lucky if I had to deal with the, the stress and the, the logistics of having a, a normal job, quote unquote, um, it, my life would be very different. So I'm sure that, you know, many of your, the people on your channel, you know, have got to, as well as you, you know, have got to function in the so-called normal world with, with the so-called normal level, level of functionality, you know, and, and how difficult that is. So I'm very grateful that I, um, I get to do what I love doing, um, and talking to people and being an advocate for, I mean, I'm an environmental um, advocate, but I'm also an, an advocate for, um, you know, living without fear and how important that is. Yeah, it is. Um, you let, uh, I want to circle the wagons back a bit. And, um, and so I know, when you initial, as we've, we've all experienced, uh, you know, uh, as when you get diagnosed with a disability and can't do certain stuff, some people magically aren't there to answer your phone calls or drop out, or they drop out of your life. And at the, in the moment, it's really painful and really hard to cope with. Um, but in, in a longer view of things, you know, some of these, what seemed like curses initially end up being blessings. So do you want to, uh, unpack that? <laughs> well, sure um, you have a lot to say about that. Go for it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, the, the silver lining. So, when I was first diagnosed, my um, I would talk to my neurologist and say, so I have MS. And he refused to say, you have MS. He said, you have a touch of MS. And I would joke, oh, like a touch pregnant. And um, and so that <laughs> that was that became our sort of joke. Um, but it's learning how to uh, sort of manage and, and navigate 
the 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 horror i mean it's it's terrible you know when you're when you're sort of figuring stuff out for how what your life is gonna you know be like um but in in hindsight as as you were saying mark it it, it it's a very different lens um when we look at at the time when i was living through you know, my, my thirties basically, um, and into forties, it, it was, it was horrific. And I would not wish that on anyone, but looking backwards, it's, um, was a very, very important time because I, I did, I made choices and I went in directions that brought me to where I am right now. Um, and so that is, definitely the silver lining of, of their, you know, so their silver linings to the pandemic that here we can be having this conversation on our computers, you know, and whereas that, you know, uh, five years ago, wouldn't be the situation. So there, there, it, it's always in the moment. Um, the challenge is to survive the moment. And sometimes that is literally moment by moment. But then as we get move a little bit away from from that volcano of of whatever it is, we we can we can go, oh, isn't that volcano erupting kind of beautiful? <laughs> and and so th so that's been my experience. Um when we were talk when we were talking last time during the pre-interview, uh, you mentioned your dislike of the word disability, and I think there was another word you mentioned. I forget what it was, but um, it, could you explain that or talk? Well, that? disability is like the word disease. You know, disease, disability. So. I, I feel like I'm dissing myself when I use those words, you know, that I'm, that I'm um, uh, uh, negating myself in a way. Um, so I choose to live with ease, not this ease um, and ability, not disability. And, and it, I'm, I don't mean to sound flippant. Um, I, I understand the, the, the heavy nature of of being able to turn that switch and sometimes it is turning a switch and sometimes it's it's not possible but some days right some days it is possible to flip that yeah. switch and go and to to say i don't have a disease i have ease i don't have a disability i have ability and and making that choice um in the way that we think about ourselves right. when, when we look in the mirror I think uh, internally, it's important to know that for sure. But when we're talking generationally um, and how people understand the wordage that was used, you know, over until now, <laughs> you know, we can't look down on. I mean, that was just what they were taught and what was what they thought was appropriate. Now, 
if you are aware of the issues and the stigma behind those particular words and going forward, you still use it in a derogatory way. Now, that's a problem. But if you're, if you grew up, say you're my grandma or you're 80, you know, and, and you know, you're used to the word purple. Fine. I'm not going to call you out for it. That is your experience of what you knew. And if that's how you need to wordage, if that's how you need to identify me in your mind, that's fine. That's I'm not going to try to change you, you know, but if you, I think if you mentally understand that stuff and can, and you want to change your, try to change your wording, you know, um, I think that's great, you know. And it's, uh, if you really think about it, words that we use today, they I mean, they've been drilled into our heads in schools, but essentially the words were made up by, by people ourselves who had an idea and decided to give meaning to word. And then they spread it around through dictionaries and which in turn spread around through schools and then in some cases, beat us over the head with those meanings and those, right? But we have every right and every ability to redefine them and re give them new meanings and new definitions. Absolutely. Yeah, like I was saying, you know, as long as we know as people not to take that internalized ableism that's been used on us and take that disability as negative and think about those positive terms associated with our own thoughts of disability, then that's going to change a lot of perspectives going forward. I, th I think we, we absolutely, all of this is, is um, right along my my thinking um i uh we 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 have so many little choices to make in the day um and and to mindfulness is is really helpful to sort of slow down and 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 say and you know think before you speak you know and the golden rule and all of that so you're talking about generational stuff so, so those are old forms of ways to express um, compassion, right? Um, is is to be careful, um, and uh, I would, um, you know, say that people who are differently abled perhaps have a greater capacity for compassion because they have to. They have to find it. We have to find it wh wherever we can um, in in our lives, and to be uh, not take 
it too personally, but be righteously angry when the situation calls for it. And I think that's kind of what you were talking about a little bit earlier, Mark, as far as, you know, where are people coming from when they are asking me, you know, what's wrong with you or why do you, you know, use a cane? I mean, we have to sort of sense that where, where that, where that questioning is coming from, you know, but for sure. I was watching an interesting video or uh, short about <laughs> in the disability community um, on the history of um, handicapped. Do you know where that came from? No, tell me. So you mean, you mean the term handicapped? Mm-hmm. I know you so, handicap horses at the races. Right, exactly. The races, it had to do with being an equalizing force. The hand and the cap was something they used in horse racing to give everybody an equal playing field. So I didn't know that. I always looked at handicapped as being like a derogatory kind of thing. But that gave me a whole new perspective on it. And that's something I talk about a lot, too, is doing research and finding out things, you know, before you give it something, a negative connotation to it, you know. Um, Because it can be so enlightening if you don't, if, I mean, if you do look it up. Well, we're talking about language here, right? Which is my fascination. Well, one of my fascinations. And and um, language is very, very powerful way of, um, you know, there are many other ways to communicate other than language. Um, but, you know, uh, what our face, our expression, our, um, well, how, how we're, we're smelling, you know, the, I'm, uh, you know, when I get nervous, I, Anyway, that's TMI. But um, I, I just, I think um, there are lots of ways to communicate, but language is the one that we as humanoids, as or hominins or whatever it is we are, um, that is not unique to us, but certainly elevates us. And arguably language is civilization is an indication of civilization and um, how we use that language that we can be cautious with it, or we can be, we can use it like sticks and stones. Elevates some of most, some of us, Um, (laughs) but you know, the, here's the, the funny thing is these days, the, a big topic of conversation is AI, right? Or you could take any any tool you want you or any technology and use it for good or use it for bad. And we're all we're concerned about all these big things, but language is a huge thing that we use every day. And we use it. We can use it to build people up or use it to control them or use it to instigate them or 
we can do tons of things with it. And as I understand, artificial intelligence is that it is language with a capital L. I mean, I've been researching this because uh, for a number of reasons, but mainly because my next book is has an AI component to it. Um, uh, but it's, yeah, that, that basically, again, I'm not an expert, but as I understand it, what AI does is it can reduce everything to code, which is a binary language, a type of language. And if everything that we know as reality can be reduced to that simple language, that's kind of marvelous and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> it definitely. <laughs> yeah, but that's up to, up to us as humans to right. do it in a positive way. Are we going to go forward with the world doing it negatively and taking advantage and harming humanity? Um, and extincting ourselves or or are we gonna use it for good and to advance things and to do better for society that's the ultimate ultimate point is that ai or language or whatever whatever you want to talk about they're just tools they don't have they aren't good they aren't bad they're just they just are and it's up to us to infuse morality on them because they have no there there's nothing there it's just a tool yep yep anything else mark <laughs> Um, no. <laughs> um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Your your do you want to do the promoting of your stuff now? Sure. Yeah. So thank you. Um. So I um I got some very exciting news yesterday. I uh um received a message that my uh book. My published book that is out now, um, it's called The Foreigner's Confession, and it is a dual timeline story uh, set in Civil War era Cambodia. And it has, it is a finalist for the Nancy Pearl um, uh, Book Award um, here wow. in the Pacific Northwest. So I was very excited about um, that. Congratulations. Thank you. So that that book came out, and um, the uh, why that particular book might be of interest to your um, to this channel is that I wrote my main protagonist as having an amputation, and there are uh, and like I was saying earlier, I have MS in the same way that I have white hair. Well, my character has an amputation in the same way that she has blue eyes. So she moves through the story um, and the amputation or her um, is not, it's almost like um, 
it's it's like her shoes um so i it, it um it it's 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 not the story it's just part, part of of her and the reason that she went to cambodia in the first place was to help victims of landmines and cambodia has the most highest per capita incidence of victims of landmines um when i was researching that this story, I interviewed um, a number of young women who um, with amputations. And this one particular woman, um, Nicole, who lives in Australia, um, she lost both her legs when she was a teenager. And she um, has a very full life. Um, she swims and she has a family and um, she made sure to uh, drill home to me the point that she has an amputation. She's not an amputee. Oh. And so getting back to language that how important that was. So I actually, my character actually quotes Nicole in the book, you know, as, as far as how she identifies, if you will, we talk about how we identify a lot these days. Right. Um, so she, she does not identify as being an amputee. She just happens to have an amputation. So, so, so my story, like I say, set in Cambodia, um, and this woman has um, a very unusual experience. Discovers a portrait of um, a woman from. Uh, there's no way that they could know one another or they ever meet one another, but they look exactly the same, and their lives become entwined in this very sort of mystical transcendent way. Um, so that's the story, uh, The Foreigner's Confession, which is out now. Um, I have another book which will be coming out in the in about six weeks or so, um, which is called The Worth of a Ruby. And that book is set in Myanmar, Burma, which is where I was born and lived as a child and opened a restaurant and et cetera. A lot of my life is there. Um, and there the disability, if you will, is um, related to mental illness and childhood trauma. So I, my characters are struggling with heavy stuff. And I like to write using conflict zones as a backdrop, because I believe that mirrors what we go through every day in our lives. Um, we so are navigating yeah. conflicts. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's why I thought your what you guys talk about would be your listeners, your participants might be interested in in the kind of stories that I write. Um, so that's why I think we found one another. Yeah. And uh, perhaps a launching point for getting into those conflicts is it all starts with language in those those mm -hmm. first impression kind of those mm -hmm. seemingly innocent the uh, things like ableism and other isms that create the fuel for these conflicts yes imperialism yeah. all the isms my my husband is a I mean he works a corporate job but he's a he does art on the side and he did a project all about isms 
<laughs> because there are just so many isms and and he and I are both um fascinated he's originally from Serbia in former Yugoslavia and he has a very different lens on um the world than I do as an American yeah. and uh it's it's very interesting to think about evil and how evil lives in our everyday lives and you know I think about stuff like does you know did Hitler's mom when she was holding breastfeeding him you know look at her little Adolfi and and think oh see some that he had some horrible stain probably not so so we are all capable of horrible things given the right set of circumstances and right. yes definitely language is is a match to yes. to what could to a conflagration that is just waiting to happen yeah. while i think it's so uh awesome what you're doing and it's brilliant because uh the parallels while they're not they're not quite the same they are in some ways because the language being spoken between countries is what starts wars. The language that is used between ableist and or able-bodied people and disabled people and each other. Um, is also a language problem and it can start not wars but can start division yeah. and so I think it's important to show the conflict in war is how that can have really bad consequences and it can parallel Agreed. <laughs> so I don't know what else to talk about. I don't. <laughs> I think is that I I think we have yeah. some really good. Anything do you have some juice, juicy stuff to work with? I mean, I I mean, I can talk a lot if I have to, or if if you want me to. I don't know, but um, I I just I I appreciate this you know opportunity to to know you guys in this, you know, very sort of two-dimensional way. Um, oh, and and um, to, uh, you know, um, I respect what you're doing, which is being, um, being unapologetically, here we are, and we're going to talk about it. And, and that, circles around to what we first started talking about of, of the, you know, people who are um, cautious or afraid or nervous about talking about disability. And um, I think that, that we should, I don't know, say it loud, out loud a lot. Right. We, we, we need to have these difficult conversations and be able to dialogue. Speaking of, uh, you mentioned how, uh, you know, we are doing this podcast to answer speaking about these things, but, and 
in relation to hidden blessings, you know, those people who maybe didn't treat us as well as they could have or should have and uh, cast us out of their circles or whatever, we're actually kind of doing us a favor because then this happened, <laughs> you know? And this was born out of that pain and that struggle and all that stuff. Yeah. Yes. That's the silver lining, right? I mean, it it really is. I mean, when you when you can peel away all those layers of of hubris and and extra um and become more authentic and more honest, um, I think is always um again looking in hindsight. Um, it is a gift. Um, so all those meanies go be stupid together somewhere else. Uh, well, it was uh, nice talking to you, Leah. We could certainly talk for a long time about all these topics. Mm -hmm. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're so welcome. Bye. Bye. Bye.